This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with famous chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We'll then be speaking to the producers of those ingredients to talk about why chefs love using them in their kitchens. Andrea, today we're speaking about a traditional Italian product. God, that was hard. I'm I'm Italian too and I shouldn't (laughs) be doing that. We're talking about one of my favorite things from Italy. Do you know what it is? I'm going to guess. Guess. Balsamic vinegar. You knew the answer, so that wasn't really a guess. It wasn't a guess, but... So we've got Mark Forgione, who is culinary royalty, at least his family is, in New York. He's an amazing chef. For a VIP guest, you know, that comes into Peasant, you know, we'll we'll do a little simple Parmesan cheese and, um, you know, just a drop of some aged balsamic and it's like a perfect way to like welcome somebody into an Italian meal. And as you mentioned, we're going to be talking about balsamic vinegar with him. We're also going to be talking to Walter and April from Sparrow Lane Vinegars out in California. They make a balsamic vinegar, even though it's not from the Emilia Romagna region of Italy. They make a, a really fantastic golden balsamic balsamic vinegar, which mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll get into. You know, we have seasonal varietals and we have, you know, some that aren't as popular and, and we uh, retire those. I mean, we have over 20, I want to say 24 varietals now. Let's talk about balsamic vinegar. This is something we could talk about hours for. And the reason I say that is there's all different types of balsamic and it's something that's actually become quite, I hate, pardon my French, everybody, but it's been become quite bastardized. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's real balsamic vinegar and then there's balsamic vinegar. And I put an asterisk next to it because it's this inexpensive stuff that's labeled as balsamic vinegar. And it really has nothing to do with balsamic vinegar. So, John, why don't you tell us what makes balsamic balsamic? All right, I'm going to do my best just to, off you know, the top of my don't head. Don't talk for okay. hours. So, is <laughs> a radio show? Are we supposed to talk? You know. So, tr- you take to make what is known as traditional balsamic vinegar. And there's rules in Italy about this. Like, if you want to call something it's a DOP product, balsamic right? vinegar of Modena, to put that on the label in Italy, the product must be made with Trebbiano grapes. Mm hmm. From that, you make a grape must, which is basically a cooked down concentration of the grapes. And then it is mixed with a red wine vinegar that's made with Trebbiano grapes. And then it's aged. And I don't ask me the specifics of how long it has to be aged and stuff like that. But that's essentially what happens. And it's There's, in Modena, in that yeah, region of Italy. In, in Emilia Romagna. Yes. Right near Parma, right near... Mm-hmm as you said, Modena, near Bologna. What has happened in recent years, because the production of balsamic vinegar is not inexpensive, it does take time, people and food makers have started, had started to add caramel coloring to the product to give it its sweetness and its beautiful color. Another thing that folks started doing quite a bit of is cooking down inexpensive vinegar to give it the same viscosity, texture, flavor as something that took many, many years of aging to create. Now, the cooking thing, you know, listen, I understand not everybody can spend, you know, a lot of money on a bottle of balsamic vinegar. And so the cooking thing I don't have as much of a problem is, but the caramel coloring where you're adding sweeteners and you're adding, you're literally adding sugar 
you're adding coloring agents to the product. It's not, to me, balsamic vinegar. Yeah, you're changing the flavor profile. I mean, think about it. If you're buying a 12-year or a 25-year aged balsamic, it has been sitting in that barrel for that many years. And essentially, the, the water, it evaporates, and you're left with this syrupy, luscious, delicious balsamic vinegar. Yeah, it's like a fine wine. It yes. starts to take on the flavor of the barrels, which Correct. it's aged in. It's, it is very a long and complicated process right. of changing barrels and different types of wood used in the barrels to give the different flavorings. Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, it could be 12 years old for the traditional. It could be 25 years or older for what they call extra vecchio or mm -hmm. extra old. Those are like nectars, mm -hmm. nectars of the gods. They're only, so delicious. Yeah. And you only need a little drop. Like it, even some of these bottles, they come with droppers. Yeah. Um, because you're not pouring it in the way that you would maybe like a salad dressing. Yeah, a couple drops is yep. all you use. You're not making yeah, you're not making salad dressing for no. the family with those. I mean you could, you could if you're, you know very, very, very wealthy. Yeah. I love something like that on top of vanilla ice cream oh, or yes. on top of just some sliced strawberries. Mm -hmm. But there are the non-aged balsamics that are made properly that are great as vinaigrettes. Yeah. And they're great in a variety of uses. So we'll be talking about all things balsamic here. It's going to be a great episode. Mark Forgione, we're going to go down to his restaurant in New York City and talk with him. And uh, can't wait for this. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. This is awesome. We are on Elizabeth Street in Lower Manhattan today. Is this Lower Manhattan? Do you call it uh, the Nolita? Honestly, it depends. We, uh, some people call it the Lower East Side. Some people call it Soho. Some people call it Nolita. Some people call it the Bowery. Well, we are in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so awesome because we are here with Mark Forgione. We're recording live from Peasant Restaurant. We're going to talk today about... Balsamic. Balsamic vinegar. Yeah. Mark there... has a really great story as to how he got introduced to balsamic well, at chef's I warehouse mean, I, got, I got introduced to balsamic as a kid you know I, I grew up in an italian household but when we were deciding what to talk about like i have no idea why this jumped in my head but i remember being like a young impressionable cook uh, or chef i guess at that point it was my first chef job and it was either maria elena or valerie i'm not exactly sure who it was but i think they were basically like oh yeah he's young we can get him to buy stuff and <laughs> they were like yeah have you ever tasted 25 year old balsamic vinegar and i was like Actually, I haven't. And obviously I tasted it and obviously it was delicious, but it was like whatever it was, $75 a bottle or something like that. And I think I was pouring like, you know, I was I was using it as if it was just balsamic vinegar. And I remember getting in trouble from the powers that be that were like, you know, did you just spend, you know, whatever it was, like $900 on balsamic this week? <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> they forgot like, yeah, to why? tell you what it costs. Well, at that point, I, you know, I didn't have any kind of real, I don't know, care, I guess you could say about costs you know what i mean it was like good products i like it i'm gonna use it da, 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 da. not knowing you were putting fifty dollars <laughs> worth of balsamic on a plate exactly and that mary elena he's referring to is our veteran all-star sales rep she's been with the company over 20 years so you're pouring balsamic like it's water this is back in what year is this blt prime a blt prime in turka 2004 was that your three? first chef job like chef de that cuisine? That was my first chef de cuisine job, yeah. So, you know, again, at the time, all I was really caring about, I was working for Laurent Tourndel, you know, one of the best chefs in the, in the world. You know, I was just always trying to impress uh, him and the guests, like, as much as I could. And, like, I just remember bringing over this dish. And I think I actually remember it was, like, a goat cheese kind of, like, crepe, you know, like, I wrapped 
some mixed goat cheese in, in a crepe and it had like heirloom tomatoes and you know all proud i like poured the the thing da, 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 and the, of course he tasted it. he's like he's you know he's delicious but the how much this cost? And I was like, I have no idea. I don't know. <laughs> what is it? Balsam, aged balsamic vinegar. And the, I don't remember this exact first time I tasted it, but there's a reason why it's so valuable and so expensive. And it's amazing. I mean, it's the time that it takes. So yeah. you're talking about, you know, the balsamic that's aged anywhere from 12 to there's balsamics that are aged for 150 years. Yeah, I think this was I think this was the 25. Yeah. If I remember so the correctly. extra vecchio, yeah. yeah. And at the time I don't think I was even 25 years old. So the 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 product was older than I was. That's hilarious. <laughs> but it honestly too, you know, I know we're making a joke about how I didn't know how much it was, but I do remember, you know, and that's also why I love cooking, you know, just being a young kid and uh, someone who loves food and loves flavor and like I tasted this, you know, and I it was just my eyes like lit up like you know, I'm going to put this on everything that I can. Um, and, you know, I still have that like childish thing when I when I taste something like that. And, you know, to this day, you know, for a VIP guest, you know, that comes into Peasant, you know, we'll we'll do a little simple Parmesan cheese, which I also get from Dara. And, um, you know, just a drop, not half the bottle, just a drop of some aged balsamic. And it's like a perfect way to like welcome somebody into an Italian meal. Yeah. Nice. But well, Andrea, we'll know when we come for dinner whether or not we're on the good list. Or the, How much the balsamic list. is on our plate? Did you get right? any balsamic? <laughs> you know what I love about Mark Forgio and Andrea is he is so old school. He's still, you know, the chef's warehouse when they started in New York 35 years ago, 36 years ago, mm-hmm. was everybody knows us as Dairyland in yeah. New York. And he still says Dairyland. He yeah. talks about Mary Elena. And Dairyland, and I love that. He's a true, uh, <laughs> true Dairyland guy. Are you using a lot of balsamic vinegar on your menu right now? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, this is this is like my first Italian restaurant, which I'm, you know, over the moon excited to be doing. I've always wanted to do an Italian restaurant. My grandfather's 100 percent Italian. We grew up kind of Italian. Don't get me wrong; it's not like as traditional as some other Italian chefs might make it. You know, I I do this as like a New York Italian restaurant. Um, but you know, I grew up eating balsamic vinegar. You know, balsamic vinaigrette was my favorite vinaigrette growing up, and we're, we're always doing fun stuff with it. Um, right now, it's mushroom. You know, winter wild mushroom season, and we do something called mushrooms marinara, where we take uh, you know the wild mushrooms that are in season. The beauty of this kitchen is you know you have the wood burning oven, and mm-hmm. we just roast the mushrooms. Like uh, over the open fire? In the open fire. I mean, it's like, you know, you put a little olive oil and salt on them and you just let them do their thing. They release all their liquid. The liquid kind of reduces and then they just kind of get like charred and smoky and delicious. You know, we add a bunch of other flavorings to it. And then we put a little like spoonful of that underneath. And then the uh, local burrata from uh, De Palos right around the corner. And then we take balsamic vinegar. We reduce it with like some mushroom essence and the juices that kind of come out of the wood burning oven, a little bit of truffle peelings, and we make like a reduced truffle balsamic. And then we kind of just spoon that right over the, the burrata and, you know, serve it with some homemade sourdough bread. And I'm salivating, like, John. <laughs> so, like, so am I. It's like... Uh, it's, it's almost lunchtime. Yep. <laughs> it's, we'll have one of those. You know, the beauty of, of, of Italian food, which is something that I love, you know, I think Forge is, again, we call it like New York, like cuisine, melting pot, eclectic, um, creative, like, you know, it, you know, sometimes there's a lot that goes into creating a dish and there's a lot that goes into this just here too. Don't get me wrong, but Italians like have this beautiful way of letting the ingredients be the ingredients. You know what I mean? Where it's just like burrata with wood roasted mushrooms, truffle infused balsamic and some bread. And it's like, and you call it a day and you don't, 
have to do anything to it. You know yeah. what I mean? You don't have to puree the burrata into put it in a squeeze bottle. It's like, no, we just he made it this morning. We're serving it tonight. Like, you know, enjoy it. I think I balsamic love. is one of the ingredients that the flavors are so intense and delicious and nuanced when you have the really good stuff that's aged. It does speak for itself. And I think when, you know, on trips to Italy where I've had it in in, you know, Modena or in Emilia Romagna, like some of my favorite things are just like a simple fior de latte gelato with a drizzle of it or some fruit with a little drizzle Strawberries of it. Strawberries with balsamic. Yeah. What are some of the other things that you're doing here at Peasant with it? You know, you mentioned vinaigrette. People always think of balsamic for vinaigrette, but there's so many more things to do with balsamic. Yeah. I mean, listen, pretty much always have a balsamic reduction somewhere on the line ready to go. And, you know, for anybody that hasn't done that at home, because it's so easy. And once you do it, it will never go back. I mean, literally never. Like I, you know, challenge you to leave it there for five years and it'll still be good. Probably better. Balsamic, a little bit of sugar. I always like a few cracks of black pepper in there and we'll just let that kind of reduce. And you could throw herbs or, you know, garlic or mushrooms, like I said before, whatever you want to put in there, strain it. We always use the back of the spoon kind of method. Like once it coats the back of a spoon, you know, when it cools, it's going to be ready to go. One of my favorite things that we do here that I actually learned or created at BLT, um, we call the black onion vinaigrette and we slice red onions on the slicer, olive oil, balsamic, salt, pepper, basically burn them, but in a good way, like we'll, we'll char them in the oven or on the wood burning grill and they get black and caramelized from the, the balsamic. And then we'll literally just puree that in a blender um, adding a little more balsamic and a little more olive oil and it creates like this paste and again you add like a spoonful of this paste to anything you know whether it's finishing a pasta or you know putting it with you know you said before like some strawberries in the summertime you know anything like that you know balsamic is you know extremely versatile we marinate radicchio and trevisano we keep it you know right next to the wood burning grill and if you order our piedmontese ribeye we char it to order and just serve it right next to the steak. And like, again, it sounds so simple, but like a grass-fed Piedmontese ribeye grilled over open fire with charred radicchio and trevisano drizzled with balsamic vinegar. It's like, it's killer. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like balsamic has become, just even saying balsamic is so, seems so common. And we've talked about this before. We take it for granted mm -hmm. because oh, yeah. it's on every supermarket shelf in America today. Like you can go to... Kearney, Nebraska, walk into a supermarket and there will be probably a few balsamics to choose from. If you go back into the 1980s, I'll even say the 1990s, uh, you'd be hard pressed to find balsamic in any supermarket. You'd have to go to a Balducci's or a specialty food like store Deluca, yeah. where you might find, you know, a couple of choices on it. So it's one of these things that has become so commonplace. But when you really start to think about it and you start to talk about it, it's an ingredient that is when it's aged very sweet, but it also has a good amount of acidity to it. And there's not a lot of ingredients that have that The complexity, mix. yeah. Because you can have red wine vinegar, a lot of acidity. It's got flavor, but it ain't sweet. Mm -hmm. You could have lemons, a lot of acidity. You know, unless you're adding a lot of sugar, it's not sweet. So this is one of those ingredients that is so complex. There's a reason why it is on the shelves in yeah, Kearney, Nebraska. It's also, balsamic vinegar is also one of the most unique ingredients that you have in your dry storage. I mean, like what tastes like balsamic? I mean, there's nothing, you know what I mean? Yep. There's a, a great it's, point. It's yeah. just it, balsamic vinegar is like its own category. 
you know, yeah. like, you know, there's red wine vinegar and sherry vinegar and white wine vinegar, but those are all kind of interchangeable when you're making like, you know, uh, different vinaigrettes or marinades and stuff. And I love all three of those too. Don't get me wrong. But when you say balsamic, it's like, it's usually not even on the same shelf as those. It's yeah. like in its own. I feel like uh, it's like the king of the vinegars. Oh yeah. Let me throw some uh, controversy into the conversation. White balsamic. You're never going to hear me spread hate. I mean, I, I don't use it. Not to say that there's anything wrong with it. I just, it's not in my, my repertoire. So I think, you know, kind of enough said. Okay. That was just a <laughs> random thing to throw out. We have the white balsamic glaze from, from Tara Bormani. Oh, just the regular white balsamic's amazing. Yes. You know, I'll, I'll, they get, can't some, even I'll call get some it, in tomorrow from Dairyland and we'll... We'll, we'll send yeah. you a bottle. It's And actually, they can't call it balsamic yep. vinegar. They have to call it condimento di balsamico bianco in Italian because there are strict rules of the consortium of of uh, balsamic vinegar of Modena that you're only allowed to use Trebbiano grapes and it's got to be, you know, must aged a certain amount of time. And this product is kind of a sweet white vinegar. I personally love it because of the fact that it does have a balsamic flavor. It does have acidity and sweetness, but it doesn't discolor food. Mm -hmm. And if you're making something like a beautiful heirloom tomato salad in the summer, mm -hmm. you can use this and you still keep those vibrant colors. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten to the point where, and I love regular traditional balsamic, but if I'm doing things where I don't want color interference, I will exclusively use white balsamic. That's why I mention it. It could yeah. also be like a surprise because when you look at it, you know, you're not thinking it's balsamic. You're not thinking you're getting that flavor. So it could also kind of be a little playful in that way. Yeah. You know what, you know what I do, by the way, to solve the discoloring problem? Because I've, I've actually heard that from other people. But that's where I would take the, like the onion paste or the reduced balsamic, almost like brush the bottom of the plate with it. Yes. And then you make your salad on top of it, where to your point too, with a surprise, now you're eating it and it's like, oh, there's yep. like the fork kind of drags on the bottom of the plate. You didn't even realize it was there. I love that. So you buy balsamic vinegar from Dairyland. What are you looking for in a good balsamic? When you're in the grocery store, for example, and you know, you're you're shopping for your own, you know, sometimes there could be some imposters out there. And I would always look, you know, uh, that you're getting the the balsamico, you know, and make sure that it's from Modena. Sometimes they change like a letter or two, or it's not called balsamic vinegar, it's called balsamic something else. I would just kind of read the fine print before you get it. And usually appearance when you're in the grocery store, I hate to say like the nicer bottles are usually the ones that you want to look for, but take a look because, you know, they, they take great pride with their product. It is a great point. You, you do have to maybe spend a little bit more to get the real deal. And we're not talking hundreds of dollars, but a lot of times you'll see these inferior products that have a lot of caramel color added yep. to them, sugar perhaps, and they're like balsamic, but they're not balsamic. And even if you get, you know, the non super age stuff, it's worth spending a couple extra bucks to get the good stuff. So yeah, yeah I think that's great advice. Because again, it's not going to go bad either. Like, yeah. You know, you keep it, you keep it in your food. Forever. I'm Mark Forgione and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. Backing up a little bit. So I think food's kind of in your blood, right? You grew up working with your dad. Yeah, I grew up, uh, you know, son of a chef. Not just son of a chef. My parents met at culinary school. So uh, my mom is a, is a great cook as well. Uh, my grandfather loves cooking. Grandmother loves... I mean, like, I, like food was like a huge part of, of our upbringing. You know, I'm not 100% Italian, but my grandfather was, and he was the patriarch of the family. So like 
you know, we did the Sunday suppers and, you know, all the holidays were always Italian focused. And and, you know, and your dad was a legend of yeah. well, the godfather American of cooking. American cooking. I was just about to get right. to that part, you know, where it's like, you know, we grew up and my dad, you know, at the time had one of the top 10 restaurants like in the country. And um, it was when American cuisine was like exploding for the first time. And he was like on the forefront of that. But trust me, when I tell you when you're 10 years old, you didn't have any idea that that was happening. I was going to ask, like, what was that like growing up as like a no kid? Idea. You had no, no reference? Clue. Okay. Zero. I mean, it was, it was like dad's restaurant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and my brother still wanted a grilled cheese. So he got a grilled cheese when he went to dad's restaurant, like hooligan, you know, from Connecticut grilled cheese that, you know, on fresh made whole wheat sourdough that they were making there. But he, we didn't know that it was just grilled cheese. As I got older, like most kids, you know, I wanted some money. And like, at that point I was outgrew getting a dollar to do the matures. And, you know, it was like, well, you know, I need a summer job. And like, it just so happened that my summer job was working at an American place. But even then I, I, I didn't like understand it fully. I think I really, really understood it fully when I got out of into college and you know, every once in a while, my dad would be in like a textbook that I was like, if I was taking like a culinary course, I didn't go to culinary school. But I think when I started to work in other restaurants was when I really like, you know, people like you're, you're Larry Ford, you and son, like, holy shit. Like, you know, and people would say like, what's it like growing up? And I was like, I don't know. Like, what, what do you mean? It's just my dad, you know? But then like, you know, again, as I got old enough and more mature, like you start to like read the, you know, the history of it. And did you feel the pressure at all? You know, it's it's funny. I tell everybody it's it's like literally the most double edged sword you could possibly imagine, you know, because it obviously has its pros and its and its cons. I think a lot of people wanted to hire me maybe because I was Larry's kid and da 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 da. But at the same time, probably more people, you know, in New York in particular, and it was usually more the sous chefs than the actual executive chefs that just wanted to like kick the shit out of me. You know, I can't tell you how many times as like anybody, when I'm a young cook, you mess stuff up. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, what would your dad say? Or oh, this is the godson of American cuisine or blah, blah, you know what I mean? And like, right. trust me when I tell you that there was always an extra eye on everything I did. But at the same time, I think it also made me, I had to be much better than everybody else at what I was doing. Because if I screwed up, it wasn't like, hey, you know, Johnny, like, you know, next time do it better. If I screwed up, it was like, hey, everybody look at Mark Fortune. Hey, this is that. It, so it's like I did everything I possibly could to not screw up. Think that that was part of the reason that like I got to where I was so quickly at, at a young age. And I actually got tired of being Larry Fortune's son when I was sure. about 23. So I left and I went to Europe. You um, went to France? I went to France to just get away. You didn't want to um, live in that shadow. And you had a kind of what I would say is a very non-traditional road to getting into restaurants to begin with. And as you mentioned, you didn't go to CIA or you didn't go to any culinary school. Did your father want you to get into the world of cooking? He never once pressured me to, to become a chef. And it was always by my choice. You know, I had to go to work. And at the time, my dad was opening um, the grill room, uh, which is not there anymore. It's in the World Financial Center. And that was my first time working full time. Like it wasn't just a summer gig. And that was, I think, when I kind of got bit by the bug. You know, mm -hmm. if you hear any chef, they tell you, you get bit by the bug and that's it. It's over. And your culinary background. So you mentioned you worked in France. Uh, you worked for Laurent Tornondel. Is there a type of cuisine that speaks most to you? What you love to do? Is it Italian? Is it French? Is it? I didn't really do it on purpose and nobody really told me to do it this way. But I had such an eclectic mix of chefs early on in my career that, you know, I had the American obviously from an American place. And then I worked with Patricia Yeo, kind of like Chinese. And then we opened Pazzo, which was like Mediterranean 
um, with Pino Maffeo, who's another rock star. I worked with Kazuto and Vicky from Chinois in Maine, did a restaurant called Above in Times Square. And then, like I said, I, I went to France with Michel Garrard, which was like three Michelin star, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And then Laurent, who's obviously one of the best French chefs in the world, but we opened an American steakhouse together. You know, I think when it was time to open a restaurant Mark Forgione, which at the time was called Forge. I think everybody kind of thought that I was going to try to open an American place, but that wasn't my plan. Like I wanted to just open, I, I call it kind of New York cuisine. You know, New York is the biggest melting pot in the world. So I had all these flavors from, you know, from Patricia and from Kazuto and from Michel Girard and from Laurent and from my dad and kind of call it like, you know, New York, like kind of melting pot cuisine. And people would come and be like, well, you know, your dad was all American. Like, well, you know, you have French wine on your list and you, you know, you have Italian dishes. Like, like what are you doing? And it was like, and if you look at all the early reviews, there was there was literally like two paragraphs on an American place before they even started talking about the thing, which, again, as I said before, kind of pushed me to have to be better than, you know, I wasn't just like some kid opening a restaurant. I mean, I think you stepped out of that shadow very quickly. You clearly felt that. But I think it took about two years. Yeah. Which people don't realize because I opened right before the recession, which 2008, 2009, yep. which, you know, we went from doing 150 on a Saturday to 20. That I love that, that your passion is palpable. Yeah. You lived through the recession of 08. You survived COVID, yet you still have this, I can just feel the passion and the excitement you still have for cooking. And you've been at this a long time. So you're, and you're still, you're, you know, you're still working in the kitchen, which, you know, there's a lot of chefs that have gotten to a level that maybe they're not in their kitchen every day. They're not working on new recipes. They're kind of letting their, their guys do it. Well, you, you took over this restaurant January 2020, so we all know, you know, the impending doom <laughs> that that means to a lot of people. This restaurant was, you know, really special and had a, like a really big meaning to you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, peasant. Peasant. Peasant, yeah. I mean, you say peasant to like any New York foodie or chef or cook or, you know what I mean? Like, and everybody's eyes like light up like, oh my God, I love that place. Like it's got a special, special place in everybody's hearts. And Frank and, and his wife Dulce did, did such an amazing job. They were here for 20 years. I used to live on Mulberry between Grand and Hester. This was like my, my spot, you know, uh, Forge is kind of decorated like it. You know, I think there's a lot of restaurants that look like Peasant now, but when Peasant first started, like the exposed brick and, you know, the candlelight and, you know, the, the natural wood. And, and I mean, he's like, you know, the OG of, of what, you know, kind of became quote unquote trendy, you know, this rustic yeah. New York city Chic. meets yeah. the hills of Tuscany or yeah, Piemonte. It didn't exist in, in yeah. the late nineties. I mean, not to the extent that he did it. And, and, you know, he did it a lot with his own bare hands too, which is such an incredible story. Um, so how did you and Frank DiCarlo come about the transition? I was doing a dinner for the New York city food and wine festival. And they asked me, you know, like, you know, I do a private dinner somewhere. I was like, I would love to. And I was like, how about we do something at Peasant? You know, I love the restaurants. Um, at the time, I was gearing up to open another restaurant that's not obviously didn't happen. Um, but that restaurant was going to have a wood burning grill. So I was like, I'd love to like do like a wood burning dinner. So you were just here as a guest chef for that event. Yep. It was myself, Meds, Redsflund and Frank. And it was a dinner for like 70 people or something like that. And I made a speech right before the dinner because I was hosting it. It was like, you know, hosted by Mark Fogiona Pheasant. And I just gave Frank and Dulce a nice kind of history to everybody about the restaurant, how much I loved it and da 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 And then after the dinner, Frank came over to me and we're drinking 
probably right exactly where we're sitting right now. And he was just like, you know, did you really mean everything you said about the, you know, that it was really nice, you know? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> no, I was lying. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a lot of things, but you know, I'm not a, I'm not a bullshit artist. He just kind of gave me a look, you know, and then Dulce came over to me and was like, what did Frank just say to you? And I'm like, you know, he just wanted to know if I meant everything I said. And she was like, all right, you know, he didn't tell you that we we're retiring. And I was like, no. And she's like, all right, well, don't tell anybody. And I was like, whatever. The secret is safe with me. But I was sad. You know, I was like, oh, that's that's tough. You know, it sucks. So that was in October. And then um, of 20 of 2019. 19. Yeah, that was October 19. Again, there was no nothing. It was just, you know, sorry to hear. I didn't I didn't come into my head like, oh, well, what are you doing with the space? Like, right. it's like nothing. Like, it was just this is happening. And then I get a call in. And it's Frank. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just want to double check again. Did you really mean everything you said? <laughs> and I was like, yes. And he's like, all right, well, we're retiring, but I don't want to just give this restaurant to somebody, you know, who's not going to respect it. You know, da, 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 da. you know, do, do you want it? It was his baby. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, do you want it? And, you know, he also had a really good relationship with his landlord. I, I, and I want to make sure that my landlord, you know, gets a good, you know, tenant and da, 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 da. And I was like, are you calling me to see if I want to take over Peasant? And he's like, yeah, what does it sound like? I'm over? And I was like, uh, all right. And then this is my favorite part of the whole story. He basically was like, you know, well, and I was like, I could tell there was a but. I was like, but what? And he's like, well, you got to tell me now. And I'm like, what do you mean you got to tell me now? He's like, well, I, you know, I, I got like, you know, there's like a short list. There's like three of you and. You know, you got five minutes yeah. to make the decision on whether you want to basically. buy a restaurant in New York. Yes, basically, you know, and I was like, uh, you know, and he's like, you got to tell me on the phone call. And I was like, I, wow. I was like, can you give me a couple minutes? And he's like, yeah. I put the phone on my chest and I was just like, yes, we open the restaurant and, you know, and then a global then, pandemic yeah. strikes uh, and three months such later. A shame too. I swear to like I could like the, the buzz was like it was like really just starting to happen. Like the busiest week we had was. You know, the, the week before COVID. Wow. And it was just like, you know, you could feel it. Like, you know, a couple of stories are starting to get written and like, da da is what it is. But, I, you know, everything happens for a reason. And to be honest, I think COVID in a weird way, like kind of like, I don't know, cleaned out what needed to get cleaned out of here. Mm -hmm. And I think the restaurant now is 10 times better than it was. So, um, you know, like I said, we're still here. And I, like I said, I think we're better than ever. And, um, these things happen for a reason. So. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, this is awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us. We appreciate your business. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays, everybody. This episode is sponsored by Sparrow Lane Vinegars, producing some of the finest vinegars in California. So Andrea, today we are talking with April Beach, who's the vice president of sales with Sparrow Lane. And we're also talking to Walter Nicolau III. He's the director of marketing and sales with Sparrow Lane. Sparrow Lane, for those of you who are not familiar with it, they are these makers of these amazing wine vinegars in California. And the Chef's Warehouse has been working with uh, Sparrow Lane for, I, I want to say almost a decade now, but it may not be that long. How long has Sparrow Lane been along, guys? We actually went back in the archives and uh, we found some original invoices that date back to 2008, 2009. 
Wow. wow. Okay. So I'm in it, but more than a decade. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. What is the history of Sparrow Lane? How did you guys get into the vinegar business? Sparrow Lane was a uh, company or a label that joined our, our vinegar family many years ago. Uh, Sparrow Lane actually started out as a winery in the Napa Valley. When it was first born, it was called Sparrow Lane Farms. They produced high quality wines. At the time, uh, the fellow that started Sparrow Lane was by the name of Philip Tui. He had a relationship with a lot of chefs in, in the Bay Area and San Francisco, and, and everybody was wanting him to take some of his wine and uh, create a gourmet vinegar, a variety of varietal vinegars and, and vinegars that they can use in their dishes to complement them and, and not just a, a commodity vinegar or, or a, a regular uh, shelf vinegar, but something a, a little above and beyond. So that's when Philip began working on some of these varietal vinegars. That's what kind of got the ball rolling. Now, these vinegars are not just red wine vinegar and white wine vinegar. They are really special. Can you tell us about the assortment that you, about your sure. line? I feel like there's sure, sure. Uh, I know, but they're but they're incredible. Like the combinations there's, that they've come up with. You know, we have seasonal varietals, and we have you know some that aren't as popular, and and we uh, retire those. I mean, we have over twenty. I want to say twenty four varietals now and honestly some of the inspiration comes from what customers will kind of ask for while we're out in the market and others are um, people such as our vinegar maker and even some people in the office coming up with some things playing around with stuff and come up with great combinations and it just works some of the flavors are also born on you know what's available in the area as far as the uh, fruits and and you know seasonality of of certain crops is, is uh, also inspiration for us coming up with uh, certain varietals and flavors. What are the top five flavors that you carry? Number one is golden balsamic, which is our version of a light balsamic, um, our apple cider, our champagne, um, our sherry, which if you haven't tried it, just a little bit different than a lot of the sherries out there. And then um, believe it or not, our Cabernet. Oh, nice. How is your sherry different? You know, most sherries, a lot of sherries have a cloudiness to it. Ours is very clear, um, very crisp. It's going to be very sherry forward, but you're also going to get the sherry on the back end. Anybody who wants an actual true sherry, this is very, I call it very sherry. When chefs try it, they're like, oh yeah, it's very sherry, but it's just the right balance. So these vinegars are really made for chefs. They're made for someone who's really thinking about adding acid in a different way. It's not just your standard vinegar, right? Correct. Definitely. I mean, right now we have pastry chefs, regular chefs, I mean, you know, kitchen chefs. We also, executive chefs, we also have bars using them now. They're coming up with the funnest creative ways to use vinegar in bars and in different cocktails. Yeah, I feel like vinegar in the last couple of years has really gotten beyond just the use of obviously vinaigrettes and salad dressings. And we see a lot of chefs using it in, in finishing um, it really brightens flavors. Just the other day, Andrea was making a gazpacho oh. and finished that with olive oil and sherry, just a few drops of sherry vinegar really to like brighten it up. And without that vinegar, it's a completely different dish. You guys are obviously talking to a lot of chefs. You're coming up with a lot of these new combinations as a result of collaborations with chefs. What are some of the other items that you do have now that are you know becoming part of the regular catalog? Actually, we have our own test kitchen uh, at Sparrow Lane and, and even do some some local uh, catering and, and entertaining here. With the variety of flavors that we offer, you're also able to combine them. And one example I can give you is that we do uh, this time of year, uh, we do a slaw 
Uh, we call it our uh, Sparrow Lane Slaw, and, and it actually contains a couple of our vinegars, one being our Walnut Champagne, which is a very unique flavor. Instead of using uh, lemon juice, we will substitute our uh, citrus vinegar, uh, which is one of our newer and more popular flavors. Well, I should say it's gaining popularity. By this, you're, you're, you're taking a couple of our vinegars and, and creating a dish that's very unique because it's just combining these flavors and melding them all together. So it's just really fun to, to experience all the different vinegars and, and kind of mix and match them even to make your dish really pop and, and really come alive. Yeah, I've never really uh, used more than one. Uh, so I think that's something I'm definitely going to play with at I home. I love combining vinegars. Yeah? Oh, yeah. I, I typically I kind of like stick with one, I think, but... I'm going to try that. I like to blend two or three vinegars. I do it often. Mm. I don't know how it started or when, but yeah. I find that. And the citrus vinegar sounds really cool. Yeah. Chef's Warehouse actually stocks the citrus. Oh, we're going to have to try that Love one. Love it. Love it. Another thing I wanted to mention <laughs> about Sparrow Lane, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong. Sparrow Lane, probably, there's no colorants added to anything. There's no caramel added. There's no flavorings. These are all either a natural product. Are they organic or just natural? We have some organic, and but we try to keep the process as natural as we possibly can. What is that process? Like any other uh, product, you have to start with a good base. You know, obviously wine is uh, primarily the base of, of all our vinegars. There are different wines, obviously, and that's what makes Sparrow Lane so unique. The majority of our vinegars, we obtain the wine from uh, wineries within a couple hundred miles of the vinegar plant. Sparrow Lane was born in, in, the, in the Napa Valley. So we have that, you know, we're, we're very blessed to have the Napa Valley wines at our disposal. Some of our varietals like the peach and some of the other fruit flavors, uh, we're fortunate enough if, if our farm doesn't have enough of those crops, uh, we're able to source those here from other local farmers as well to, uh, well to create, you know, a very high quality wine. Once the wine is created, gets the ball rolling for the vinegar process, and then we want to turn those uh, sugars into acid. Here, born is the vinegar process. One of the unique things about Sparolane is we, we still use the Orleans method, uh, which is dates back to the Middle Ages. It's a barrel aging method, and, and I won't go, without going into too much detail, it is what makes Sparrow Lane so unique, the true quality that, that we offer. All of our ingredients are sourced within 500 miles of our vinegar plant. So we use the freshest quality that we can get, um, the most natural. And as, if we can get the organic, we definitely always use an organic or, you know, un, kind of untouched raw product, which makes it a little bit unique as well. I think when we get our wine, um, we tr use true wine, something that's already wine, not a crush or the run which I think sets us apart a little bit as well. So are you adding a mother to the wine or is it a different process? So that is part of the Orleans method is okay. the, the vinegar barrels contain the mother. And when we add the fresh wine, keep that mother growing, the mother will acidify the wine. And, and that's what is the vinegar making process. So yes, uh, you, you definitely have to start with mother and, you know, our mothers are, are date back a couple generations in order to, you know, maintain this, this quality. So it's important from a consistency standpoint as well to make sure that, you know, the vinegar that you made a few years ago, the chef can still use it now. Um, and this, it'll have the same flavor profile. Depends on how the vinegar is stored. And most chefs are, are very aware how to store their vinegars it needs to be kept in a cool, dark place. And, and, you know, even if it does turn uh, cloudy or, or contain some natural sediments, uh, the vinegars actually only get better with age, like a fine wine. So there's no real expiration date. Is that what you're you're saying? Well, there are, there, we, no, it's, we do put an technically expiration no, date. right, Wally? <laughs> well, 
you know, by by standards, we we have to include uh, expiration date on on every bottle or or package. However, uh, yeah, vinegar really does not it, unless it is exposed to air, um, oxidizes and 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 turns bad. If it's kept, like I said, in a cool, dark place, uh, there really is no true expiration date for vinegar. Well, we really appreciate the time you've given us today. We love Sparrow Lane, amazing partner of Chef's Warehouse. It really speaks to who we are as a, as a company and the chefs that we sell to. So thank you so much. And you can find all of these products at chefswarehouse.com. Thanks, April. Thanks, thank Walter. You, and, and we thank appreciate Chef's Warehouse as a partner uh, to help spread all the uh, the hard work and the love we, we put in Sparrow Lane. So we, we thank you uh, for your support. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products discussed in today's episode on chefswarehouse.com.